this week on Hope for the Broken. Is it possible for someone to lose their salvation? The answer to that question is no. I believe the Bible teaches a doctrine that is called the doctrine of eternal security. There is such peace knowing that your eternity can be secure. In in other words, the Bible teaches once saved, always saved, forever saved. And I want to give you three proofs as to why I believe the Bible teaches that straight from Scripture. Welcome to Hope for the Broken, the audio podcast ministry of Trinity Baptist Church in Mount Pleasant, Texas. I'm your host, Austin Mahoney. We exist to become a gospel-centered community, redeeming brokenness through hope in Jesus Christ. At Trinity, we believe we are all broken and in need of the redeeming hope found in Jesus. For more information about our church, visit us on our website at trinitytx.org. This week, we continue our series called Real Questions, Biblical Answers. Here's our pastor, Chris Wigley, with part four titled, Can Anything Change My Salvation? Today we're continuing our teaching series entitled Real Questions, Biblical Answers. And though I wasn't here the past two weeks, I'm grateful for the men that stood in this pulpit. Travis and Pastor Jeff, did they not do a phenomenal job in preaching God's Word for us? Absolutely. Amen to that. I'm so grateful for those two men and the word that they gave our church. I want to invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 11 today as we attempt to tackle the question, can anything change my salvation? You know, this has been a subject, a question of debate and Christendom for centuries. There are those that would suggest that somehow, yes, you can profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, and then you could walk away from that faith and disobedience and walk away from your status of being a child of God. While other theologians would suggest that there is nothing that you could do to lose your salvation, that your salvation is eternally secure. Maybe you've heard it said this way. People in that camp would say, once saved, always saved, right? You've heard that phrase before? But here's my question. What does the Bible have to say about this? Can we get clear answers? Or perhaps you've heard the question asked this way. If someone makes a profession of faith, gets caught up in the wrong crowd, and spirals into disobedience, is that person still destined for heaven? Or has, have they somehow lost their salvation? Is it possible for someone that has been saved to later renounce the faith and no longer be a believer? I think the Bible speaks a lot to these questions, and it's my goal this morning to answer that question directly, concisely, and clearly. I want to offer three proofs as to why I take that position from the Scriptures. I want to talk about some warnings and explain how you can know for certain today that you are saved. Now, I know when I use the word saved, uh, that might be a foreign word to some of you. If you have not grown up in church, uh, this word saved, what are we saved from? What is the big deal about being saved? Why does somebody ask me if I'm saved? And so I never want to take for granted that, that we know church terms. 
Uh, I remember when I was in the fourth grade is when I got saved. I made a profession of faith. I trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And I went on Monday. That was a Sunday. I went on that next Monday. And I told my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Dornan, I still remember this very clearly as if it was yesterday. And I said, Ms. Dornan, Ms. Dornan, Ms. Dornan, guess what happened to me yesterday? And she said, what? I said, I got saved. And of course, Ms. Dornan's thinking, oh my gosh, what has Chris gotten himself into? Uh, who, is he, who is he needing to be rescued from? And so she asked a really good follow-up question. She says, Chris, saved from what? And I only added to her confusion when I said, the devil, right? <laughs> and she was like, oh Lord, Chris is in trouble, right? I tried my best to explain what that meant. I still think to this day, Ms. Dornan is confused about what it means to be saved. And so, so what I want to do is I don't want to take for granted that everybody knows what that means. When we use the term saved, what we're referring to is the fact that we have uh, been purchased by Jesus. You know, the word salvation in and of itself uh, makes an assumption that we needed to be rescued from something. And indeed, that is the reality. You and I, all people, need to be rescued from something. The Bible says that for all have sinned. That word sin is, is a word that means to miss the mark or to fall short of God's standard of perfection. And, and that falling short has uh, immense consequences. Uh, to fall short, to, to be involved in sin, to, to go against God's law means that we earn for ourselves an eternal separation from God in a very real place called hell. And this is a problem, right? And we need to be rescued from it. But praise be to God that God saw us in that condition and he provided a way for us to be rescued. And he sent his own son, Jesus, that when he died upon the cross, he was buried, he rose the third day, he met the righteous requirements that we could not meet. And when we place our faith and trust in him, we are rescued. We are forgiven of our sin. That's what it means to be saved. But more than that, salvation means that you now have a relationship with a holy God. Scripture says that because of our salvation, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. The Scripture teaches that because of our salvation, because we've been justified, we now have access to God 24-7. Salvation is a beautiful thing. And here's the reality. We all need salvation. Every person who is ever born, whether they are in Honduras or they are here in Mount Pleasant or they are in Timbuktu, they need a personal relationship with Jesus. You know why? Because they're a sinner destined for an eternity apart from him. And this is why it's vitally important that we proclaim with boldness the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Because God has rescued us from that. Now, I want to give you a heads up. This morning at the end of the message, I'm going to give us an opportunity to respond to Jesus. And I realize maybe in a room this size or those of you that have joined us online, perhaps there's someone here that has never bowed the knee to Jesus. And I just want to tell you in advance, you're going to have an opportunity to begin a relationship with Jesus and for you to get saved today. Scripture says today is the day of our salvation. And so just heads up on that. That's the goal. So back to the question, is it possible for someone to lose their salvation? The answer to that question is no. 
<laughs> there is nothing that can cause someone to lose their salvation. Well, where do you get this? Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There you have it. Let's pack up. Let's go home. See you next Sunday, right? Actually, some of you are about to take me up on that, right? No, we're not done yet, okay? But can you lose your salvation? No. I believe the Bible teaches a doctrine that is called the doctrine of eternal security. There is such peace knowing that your eternity can be secure, not having any questions about it. In, in other words, the Bible teaches once saved, always saved, forever saved. And I want to give you three proofs as to why I believe the Bible teaches that straight from Scripture. Number one, salvation belongs to God. Salvation belongs to God. Scripture teaches that we cannot lose our salvation because it is not ours to gain. God initiated salvation. Jesus purchased our salvation, and the Holy Spirit reveals our need to be saved. And because of these truths, salvation belongs to God. What do I mean by that? In simple layman's terms, here's what I mean by that. You cannot do anything in order to earn your own salvation. You can't be good enough. You can't do enough good things. You can't give enough in order to purchase your salvation. You know what? I would argue to say this, that none of us would even recognize our need for salvation apart from the Holy Spirit revealing that to us. There's nothing good within us that would even seek God to be saved. Right? We are that sinful, sinful humanity. And there is nothing that would, that would allow us to earn our salvation. It is only by God's love and by his grace, through the vehicle of faith, that you and I are saved. A display of God's love and his grace, Jesus dying in our place. And it is by faith that we receive what the Bible says is the gift of salvation. Did you know that? Us being, us being saved, our salvation is a gift of God. Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. And in other words, what we earn because of our disobedience is eternal separation from God. But the free gift, notice whose, whose gift it is, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So by faith and the personal work of Jesus Christ, we receive God's gift of salvation. Now, why is this important to the discussion of whether or not we can lose our salvation? Well, since it's not something you and I earn, it cannot be something that you and I unearn. Since it's not something we gain, it's not something we lose. Salvation belongs to God. And you know what? That's a good news. That's good news. You know that actually differentiates Christianity from all the other world religions? All the other world religions teach that you've got to achieve this standard. You've got to do this thing X number of times. You've got to be doing these things in order to uh, please God. Uh, and you, in those kind of religions, you go to heaven often wondering, have I done enough? Ha have I been good enough? Right? And you live your whole life wondering that question, but Christianity is entirely different because Christianity isn't do, do, do. Christianity is done. 
On the cross, Jesus proclaimed, it is finished. And you can know with absolute certainty that you are headed to heaven. And Christianity is entirely different from all of that. So, God, uh, salvation belongs to God. Secondly, God keeps his promises. God's word is true. And did you know it's impossible? It is an absolute impossibility for God to lie. And what that means is this, is that God's promises are always good. God's promises are absolutely certain. And this is a powerful truth as we examine eternal security because of what God's word promises. Let me give you three examples of these promises. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. Listen, life cannot be eternal if it can be taken away. Life that can be taken away is partial. But Jesus, if you are in him, if he knows you, if you are his sheep, he gives us eternal life. And they will never perish. And catch this. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. He goes on, verse 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. John chapter 6, verse 39 through 40. It says, and this is the will of him who sent me. This is the will of God, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone, check this out, everyone who looks on the Son and everyone who believes in the Son should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You catch that promise? No doubt. If you are in Christ, you will be risen, risen on the day of Christ. Back to Romans 8, 38 through 39. Paul says, for I am sure, I am certain that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These passages teach that the Father gives to Jesus those whom are saved, and nothing can stop Jesus from raising them up when he returns in all his glory. Nothing stops God from fulfilling his promises. Amen? And again, this has everything to do with God's ability to preserve, not my ability to perform. Praise the Lord for that. Salvation belongs to God. God keeps his promises. Thirdly, the third proof that, that uh, the Bible teaches eternal security is that God finishes what he begins. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, And I am sure of this, meaning I am certain, I'm absolutely convinced, that he, being God, who began a good work, that being salvation, in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand the power behind that verse. In order to understand the power behind that verse, you've got to understand who it is that Paul is writing those words to. You want to talk about a very messed up people? Dysfunction in the church that, that Paul started in all of those areas? In, in Corinth, the Corinthians were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Uh, the Galatians were about to abandon the gospel. 
and two women were getting in fist fights at the church of Philippi. Now that's a church service. But that's messed up, right? And what did Paul say to them? Oh, I'm certain. God's going to complete what he began in you. It's not done yet. It's got a long way to go. But God's going to finish what he began in you. Isn't that comforting? Doesn't it give you a sense of peace to know that God will finish what he has begun in you? Can you imagine the turmoil that children go through wondering if at the end of the day their father is going to accept them or not? Did you know there are a lot more kids than you would imagine that live in that state of turmoil? Not knowing where they're going to sleep, not knowing what they're going to eat, not knowing where they're going to be. But yet God says, our Heavenly Father says, listen, you can be at peace because once you're mine, you are mine forever. Sense of peace that comes from that. You know, if it were up to us, none of us would make it. But it's not up to us. It's up to God. And our eternity is secure because salvation is God's work. Because he promises to raise us up on the last day. And he will finish what he began. So we, we've discussed some strong biblical evidence that clearly teaches that our salvation is a permanent state. If you are in Christ, hear me, you are forever, eternally secure in Christ. That means that there's nothing you could do, nothing you could say, no place that you could run that would ever separate you from being a child of God. You want a case in point? The prodigal son. You remember the story in Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son demands his inheritance and Scripture tells us that when he left the father, he went and spent it. He, he wasted it away on wild living, living opposed to the will of his father. But whenever he noticed that pigs had something to eat and he didn't have anything to fill his belly, what did he do? Scripture says he came to his senses and he returned back to his father. And do you remember the story, how it ends? The father sees him while he's still a long way off and he goes running after his son and he throws a party and he talks about how his son is back in the fold. But here's the question I have for you. When that young man was off living, wild living, was he ever not the son of his father? No. He was always the son of his father. He just was being living life in disobedience. And when he came, guess what? He didn't have a less than position. He had a position as the father's son. We are eternally secure. Now this teaching, granted, raises a lot of questions. You know, if, if there's nothing we could do to change our salvation, we say yes and amen to that. That brings us peace. But does that mean that we could do whatever we want? Right? I mean, if, if we can never do anything that would cause us to lose our salvation, can't we live any old way that we want to? The resounding answer to that is no. Wait a minute, Chris. Nothing we could do could separate us from God's love, yet we still have to be obedient? Yes, because here's the difference. When we are saved, what, what have we done? We've yielded our life to Jesus. 
We've made him the boss of our life, right? That means we take our cues, we align our lives to Jesus, and we align our lives to his word. It's vitally important. But, but Chris, you just said, though, that there's nothing you could do. Here's, here's the thing. If you are truly a child of God, you will want to please your father. And that's a key difference. And so the question that we have to come to is not whether or not we're eternally secure. It's whether or not we were in Christ to begin with. That is the question. And I think that Romans chapter 8 speaks to this. You know what Romans chapter 8 is? It's a warning sign. It's a chance to check your levels. You know, we all drive cars nowadays that have warning lights on the dashboard. What happens when a warning light comes up? You give attention to it, right? Because if you don't, then there's some very costly repairs coming down the road. If you try to ignore it or cover it up, or it leads to costly repairs. But if you take heed of the warning light, then you can make a correction. Romans chapter 8 is a warning light. It's a dash light that allows us to use it as a gauge, as a measuring stick to determine, are we truly in Christ? We know that if we are in Christ, we're secure, but are we truly in Christ? And so let's examine it verse by verse, Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation. The idea is no judgment, no accusation. You cannot be condemned for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now notice what's at the end of that sentence. A period. There are some translations that would put a comma but, and, then, and then another phrase, but that was not in the original language. There's a period there. It means end of story, settled. Don't put a comma where Jesus put a period. If you are in Christ Jesus, that is, you have placed your faith in him as the Lord of your life, you are not and you will not be condemned. Rest assured, you are eternally secure. Now, I have a challenge for each of us here today. This week, in your personal time with the Lord, I want you to spend it in Romans chapter 8, the entirety of the chapter. You may break it up into sections. You, you may read the entire thing all five, six days of the week. But I want us to dive into Romans chapter 8 this week. What is it that the Holy Spirit is revealing to you in your heart through Romans chapter 8? Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What is the law? The law is, is referring to God's law, God's commands. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. In other words, the law highlighted the fact that you and I can't live up to God's holy standard. It's impossible. And I know so many Christians that live their life with this sense of angst because they're trying so hard to be that which they cannot be. And they're trying to earn their salvation and they're trying to do this and, and it creates this angst within their heart 
Listen, if you are in Christ, rest in Christ. Trust the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct you. Now, how did God do this? How did God do what the law could not do? Next phrase, by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, but not sinful flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. God did what the flesh could not do by taking on flesh in Jesus and nailing sin to the cross once and for all. Verse 4, look at what that results in. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Listen, here's the deal. In order to get to heaven, you know what you needed to be? Perfect. You know what the one thing is that you cannot be? Perfect. That presents a problem, right? And so God came down in the flesh, lived a perfect life in Jesus, died upon the cross, was buried, and was raised from the grave. And when we bow the knee to Jesus, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, a great exchange takes place. You know what that exchange is? Jesus climbs up on the cross. He says, you know what? I'll take Chris's sin. I'll take your sin, and I'll nail it to the cross. And when I received God's free gift of salvation, you know what God did? God said, Chris, here, you have Jesus' righteousness. When you are saved, you, you know what, how God looks upon you? He looks upon you as if you're Jesus. Christ settled the requirements for us that when we are in his, him, God no longer sees our sin. Instead, we have a restored relationship with him. Praise God. Keep reading. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh have set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you're in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. What does all that mean? It answers the question, how can you tell if someone is a genuine, true believer? It answers the question, if I am saved, can I live any way I want to? According to the scripture here, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are saved. Something incredible happens when we give our lives to Jesus. Scripture teaches that we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. 
that the Holy Spirit of God is given to us for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's given us, uh, to us so it can be a guide to prompt us. The Holy Spirit serves as a convictor of sin in our life. But more than all of that, which all that's great, it serves as proof of your salvation. Did you know that? Ephesians chapter 1 teaches that it is a seal of your salvation. It is a guarantee backed up by the promises of God. And so how do you know if you're a genuine believer? Do you have the Spirit? Do you have the indwelling of the Spirit of God? Well, how do you know that? Well, Paul compares the life in the Spirit versus the life in the flesh, as he often does in all of his letters in Scripture. And this answers the fact that if we are in Christ, we don't have a uh, license to sin. Why? Because we want to live according to the Spirit. How can you tell if you're a genuine believer? Do you want to live according to the Spirit? Or do you want to live according to the flesh? Key indicator. Warning light. Dashboard light. And here's the difference. And I need to be honest with you here. I want to be careful not to present to you that after we become a Christian, we become perfect. Because we don't. Paul says that he is the chief among sinners. I can attest to that. Just because I've placed my faith and trust in Jesus does not mean that I don't struggle against the flesh. Perhaps that's your same testimony. So we've got to be careful here in assessing that. The key difference is what is in our minds. Paul says this, that a true believer, even though they sin, their approach to their sin changes. He says this, he says, the true believer, quote, sets their minds on the things of the Spirit. In other words, a true believer desires to live a life of holiness. Though often they fall, they do not accept sin in their life, but instead they seek to do away with sin in their life and to live a life of holiness. The unbeliever is completely different. Paul says the unbeliever, quote, sets their minds on the things of the flesh. What are the things of the flesh? The passions and the desires of our sinful heart. There's no desire to put sin to death there, you see. Only justification. The unbeliever will often say in their mindset that is hostile to God, oh well, I'm just human. Or they'll say, ah, no big deal, Jesus will forgive me. Or they'll say, it's just the way I am. And there's no remorse. There's no conviction over their sin. A believer instead will say, that's not right in my life. And I need to repent, and I need to turn, and I need to seek Christ. An unbeliever hates accountability. A true, genuine believer embraces accountability. An unbeliever hates the conviction of the Holy Spirit. A real believer cherishes the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the difference? 
at our house on our Apple TV, we bought a game called, uh, what's it called, Jackbox? Anybody heard of the Jackbox deal? Okay, a few of you. Uh, it, it's, it's a fun game. It's an app that you actually, you actually buy, and, and within that app, there's like five different games or something like that. One of the games is called Faking It, right? And, and in this game, there's one person in the room, and by the way, you log on to your devices, and, and everybody gets the same questions, and you play along with everybody. It's a blast. It's a great group game. But in the faking it, there's one person that's given a different question than everybody else in the room, right? For example, uh, everybody in the room might be given this question, make a surprised face. Well, the faker is given this indicator, say, just try to blend in, right? And so it says three, two, one, and everybody's supposed to make a face, and you can find out who the faker is, right? Because if everybody's going, you know, then, and the, the faker's frowning, right? Then that doesn't make sense. That person's the faker. So you try to identify the faker. All that to say this, Romans chapter eight identifies the imposter. So this is our measuring stick. If you want to know if you are truly in Christ, measure your life up against Romans chapter eight. Genuine believers are differentiated from unbelievers acting like believers. And hear me clearly, please, I want to be clear. Do genuine believers struggle with sin? Yes. But their view of sin is different. So when it comes to the question, what about the person who was once a believer that has now denied the faith? Are they still a Christian? I think the better question is, were they ever a Christian to begin with? Did they truly surrender their lives to Jesus, or were they just checking a box? Did they truly make Jesus the Lord and Savior of their life, or were they just doing it because everybody else was doing it? Did they truly surrender their lives to Jesus, or did they do it just because it's the right thing to do? You see the different motivations there. A true believer surrenders their life to Jesus and seeks to be like him in every single way, knowing that they will fail. And I think it's important to say here, we all struggle with doubts. Travis did a great job a couple of weeks ago talking about that fact. And I'm not saying to doubt your faith is to deny your faith. But if you've denied your faith, did you ever have faith to begin with? I think that's a legitimate question. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, says it this way, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Uh, scripture is saying that those people that deny the faith in, in this circumstance were never in the faith to begin with. The same is true for the person that professes Christ and falls into the wrong crowd. My question would be this, are they still broken over their sin or are they accepting of it? Were they genuine a believer to begin with? And here's the deal with all that, by the way. Let me issue us a warning here. We're not the judge. Determining someone's salvation is above my pay grade, right? It's between them and the Lord. And so this ought to serve as a self-reflection for us. Now, I never want to create fear in someone when fear is not needed. 
It is not my goal to make you doubt your salvation here today, right? My goal is to actually make you feel certain about your eternity. It's also never my goal to manipulate anyone into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because if I can talk you into it, then the devil can talk you out of it. You have to weigh it for yourself to determine if you want to be saved, if you want to yield your life to Jesus. And so in the short amount of time that I have left, which I'm out of time, I want to talk about the assurance of salvation. The assurance of salvation is different from eternal security. Eternal security is a position being assured of your salvation is being certain that you have eternal security. So I want to talk just briefly about assurance of salvation. We often look for assurance of our salvation in all the wrong places. Where do we go to try to convince ourselves that we are saved? We say, well, I go to church. Well, I go on a mission trip. I, I give money to the church. I, I give money to the poor. I, I go to Sunday school. I, I do all of these things, and we begin listing out these things. But listen, remember, you're not saved, beloved, by what you do. You're saved by who you know, or rather, who knows you. And there's a big difference. I heard a preacher growing up say one time, you can miss heaven by 18 inches. You can have head knowledge, but not heart knowledge. About an 18-inch difference. Do you know Christ? And I want you to know this, that we can't find it in our actions. We find it in God's Word. I, I want to read to you 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13. It says this, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. This is key, verse 12. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. Verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God. Why? That you may know that you have eternal life. It's actually very simple. Do you have the son? Because if you have the Son, you have life, and that is a guarantee. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Have you realized that you are a sinner? Do you believe, and not just a mental belief, a life-changing belief, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, was buried, and rose again on the third day? Have you given your life to this Jesus? If so, then you have eternal life. And God wants you to know that you have eternal life. You're listening to Trinity Baptist Church's Hope for the Broken podcast. If you would like to learn more about this ministry, visit us online at trinitytx.org. That's trinitytx.org. Here's Pastor Chris to wrap up our time together. Thanks for listening today. I'm so glad that you found this podcast. It is our prayer that you are encouraged and challenged by today's message. It is our goal at Trinity to lead everyone into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Jesus as the Lord of your life, we would love to connect with you. Please feel free to give us a call at 903-572-1959 or email us at info at If you are ever in the East Texas area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 930 or 11 a.m. Thanks so much for listening today. God bless you. We pray that you have experienced hope today. If you would like to support the ministries of Trinity Baptist Church with a financial gift, 
You can do so by giving online. Simply log on to trinitytx.org and click the Give tab. Be sure to join us next week as we look into God's Word on Hope for the Broken.